Hello, and welcome to The Bunker, an American history podcast for honor students at Balsam Spa High School. Today's date is March 26, 2020, and this is episode number seven, a question and answer session on World War One. All right, this particular episode is a little different. Um, I asked students to post questions for me on our Schoology site, uh, and I'm going to read some of the responses to those questions. I kind of put them in chronological order um, for ease on both ends for me reading them and you listening to them. I'll also post a digital copy of these answers. Uh, they are spread all throughout Schoology. This kind of just puts them in one place. All right, question number one. Do we learn about any battles of the war or are we just focusing on the American side and more domestic? Uh, answer to that, no major battles. Our focus is on the impact the war had on America. That includes our initial position of neutrality in the events that led to the war declaration, home front mobilization, wartime constitutional issues, and how participation in the war impacted U.S. foreign policy moving forward. Okay, question number two. Give me a second to scroll here. Google Docs. Where are we? Damn, it went all, all the way down to page four of six. Sweet. All right, question two. Here we go. Was Mexico a problem for the U.S. after Germany sent the Zimmerman telegram? So uh, in Mexico's eyes, the United States had illegally seized about one-third of their territory during the Mexican-American War from 46 to 48, including the states that you would know now as California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. In 1916, the United States even sent an expeditionary force led by Black Jack Pershing uh, into Mexico in pursuit of the notorious revolutionary Pancho Villa. So we had uh, an interesting relationship with Mexico, to say the least. However, uh, Mexican officials kind of hedge their bets a little bit. They recognize that the reality of Germany being able to um, ship sufficient munitions here uh, to Mexico because of the naval blockade um, really limited the impact that they would have as a front for Germany. Uh, Mexico, obviously kind of a soft belly, underbelly entrance into the United States. They recognize that this probably wasn't come to fruition. So Mexico remained neutral uh, during uh, World War One. Not to say they weren't a problem uh, and always there, uh, a presence. We're always watching them, but they were neutral during World War One. Hope that answers the question. Question number three, I think we're at. Uh, I understand in times of crisis, president's powers increase, but the do the laws being passed during times of crisis have to go through the same process as any other time? Great question. The process for proposing and passing a law or executive order, that doesn't change. However, the debate about the bill or the law or the executive order um, has to kind of be understood in the context. In times of crisis and heightened sens uh, sensitivities, this usually leads to kind of a quick passage of a bill. I'll give you some examples of uh, heightened tensions. You had the Alien Sedition Acts in 1798 were on the quasi-war footing with France, and they passed through a federally or Federalist-dominated uh, Congress, and they were signed by a Federalist president. Of course, the Espionage and Sedition Acts in World War I, um, we had an anti-German sentiment, an anti-radical sentiment, an anti-socialist sentiment. They were all passed during times of fight and tensions. Uh, Executive Order 9066, which we haven't covered yet, that's going to be World War II. Um, so after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, 
but we will pass, um, ex- or excuse me, FDR will pass Executive Order 9066 on February 19th, 1942, um, relatively short time after Pearl Harbor's bombed. Um, one more in our lifetime or our current conversation in the, the 2000s, the USA Patriot Act, uh, which stands for uh, Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. Uh, that Patriot Act was signed by George Bush, October 26, 2001. I don't even think most of the congressmen actually read that. All right. So in time of crisis, the process is the same. It's the quickness at which some of these laws or executive orders get issued. All right, next question. Why do more socialists oppose the war? Or were those three socialists purposely picked out? Uh, my answer to this one. And I posted this answer actually on Schoology. I posted probably five or six responses on Schoology before I went this route. Uh, here's my answer. Uh, I chose only four socialists to focus on for illustrative purposes. If we go back with our Panera Pick 2 approach that we've employed all year, year I would uh, focus on two in particular, Eugene Debs and Charles Shanks as your best example to speak to the free speech issue in wartime. Uh, contextually, socialism is a movement that gained a lot of traction in the late 19th century as American socialists began asking why so many workers should have so little while the few owners grew incredibly wealthy. Um, so that income gap, the wage gap, all those issues were part of that conversation. Socialism in all its many forms is based on class and the idea that various social classes are fixed and therefore members of each class have economic interests that are in common and they're opposed to other classes. Uh, this uh, point of view is captured nicely in um, Debs, Eugene Debs' opposition to the U.S. and their war declaration. The war declaration catalyzed opposition from within, and Debs is a great case study there. He crisscrosses the country delivering a series of anti-war speeches. Uh, the speech in Canton, Ohio, proved to be his last oration before heading to prison. And here's what he said. He said at that Canton speech, this is Eugene Debs, the master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has all to gain and nothing to lose, where the subject class has nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. He gets thrown into his house for that. Uh, Socialist Charles Shank, the focus on wartime civil liberties, is a great case study. He's arrested for printing and distributing leaflets that denounce the draft law and the war. The leaflet recited language from the 13th Amendment, the provision that was against involuntary servitude, and said conscription act violated involuntary servitude provision. Conscription, it was said, was a monstrous deed against humanity in the interest of the financiers of Wall Street. And he also said, do not submit to intimidation. That earned him a trip to the big house. Uh, Next question. Here we go again, scrolling down Google Docs. Where is it? Um, What was the opposing argument against women having the right to vote? So if you recall... Um, from previous uh, notes that you looked at this past week, uh, we had the group called the Silent Sentinels that, that were out there petitioning. They were protesting. They were picketing. They wanted to get the right to vote, and they did not pull back even during the war years. Uh, if you compare them to what happened in, in Great Britain, Great Britain, um, who had more of an existential threat in terms of the war because it was happening in Europe, we were 3,000 miles away. So the ladies didn't take their foot off the gas. They kept protesting. And they kept kind of recycling Wilson's language and threw it right back in his face. You want to make the world safe for democracy? How about you make it safe for the 20 million women that live in the United States? 
there's the opposing view for the right to vote, the people that did not want women to get the right to vote. So most anti-suffragists argued that women simply did not want to vote. They had responsibilities in the private sphere as a mother, a wife, and a model of morality. Men, however, occupied the public sphere. They're the providers, the protectors, and the leaders. With women at home taking care of their children and managing the household, they did not have the time to vote or stay updated on politics. Others argued that women lacked the expertise or mental capacity to offer useful opinions about political issues and were more susceptible to emotional pressures when formulating their position on issues. Many anti-suffrage organizations were heavily funded by brewing and distilling interests who were convinced that women's suffrage would lead to passage of temperance laws. Southern politicians supported anti-suffrage position because they were nervous that African-American women getting the right to vote would challenge the Jim Crow social status through legislative channels. Another notable anti-suffrage supporter was the Catholic Church. The church argued that opposing women's right to vote, it, in opposing the women's right to vote, it sought to protect and defend them. They opposed suffrage, believing women's places, a woman's place was in the home. They also claimed if women were engaged in political life, their dignity would be impaired. Right. Next question posted. Uh, can the Espionage Act, which says it's uh, – help if I could read, right? Can the Espionage Act, which it says is still federal law, be used against someone today? Um, Wilson administration made ample use of the Espionage and the Sedition Acts during World War I. Although the Sedition Act was repealed in 1921, the Espionage Act does remain on the books today. Um, we'll be talking about uh, the Rosenbergs, the communist Rosenbergs, who are going to be executed by the federal government for violating the Espionage Act. Uh, Pentagon Papers during the Watergate era, Daniel Ellsberg was um, arrested for espionage. We have the Cablegate whistleblower Chelsea Manning, who falls under that category, and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, our current people, that would be... Um, arrested, prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Uh, next question. In the Espionage and Sedition Acts, how would authority know whether or not someone spoke out against the war? Or did the other citizens report it? Okay, this appeared in our podcast on, on the home front mobilization. Um, I take that back. That's not right. It actually uh, appeared in the podcast on civil liberties. So here's my response. The Justice Department sponsored the American Protective League, which by June 1917 had units in 600 cities and towns and claimed a membership of almost 100,000 patriotic citizens. Ignoring the constraints of the Constitution, League members rifled through the mail of suspected disloyals, infiltrated private meetings, and recorded speeches at public meetings. The government volunteer spies viewed any criticism of the war as a criminal offense. The APL claimed to have uncovered 3 million cases of disloyalty. The evidence for this dramatic claim, needless to say, was never offered for the public record. The government backed up private and official policing of wartime critics with the espionage law that was passed by Congress in 1917. Okay, next one. Next question. What was the migration called when African Americans moved west post-Civil War? I know the North... Excuse me, they moved north for factory jobs during World War I, but wasn't there a migration when they moved west? So this question is dealing with a synthesis point, so someone's paying attention here. They're recognizing that there's a migration and movement pattern that they've seen before. 
So we will see about 400,000 African-Americans move north for factory jobs during World War I. This particular question is referencing post-Civil War, and they were known as exodusters. That's the name given to African-Americans who migrated from states along the Mississippi River to Kansas in the late 19th century. That's the first real great migration list. Uh, next question. Seeing as Wilson was a Democrat and aired the birth of the nation at the White House, what was his response to the rising KKK activity? Um, probably smiling ear to ear. Oh, cracking a bottle of Cristal, I imagine. Um, his racism wasn't a matter of a few unfortunate remarks. If you want to know where Wilson stood, just read the record. It's there. Um, it's a core part of his political identity. Um, sure, he would be happy by the spike in membership. Um, when he comes to office, uh, takes president, he actually turns the clack, clack, damn, it's a clack, turns the clock back, um, and he resegregates the federal government. Um, he fired 15 out of 17 black supervisors in federal service and replaced them with white people. Um, after the Treasury and the Post Office began segregating, many black workers were let go. Um, the head of the Internal Revenue Division in Georgia fired all black employees, saying, there are no government positions for Negroes in the South. A Negro's place is in the cornfield. To enable hiring discrimination going forward, in 1914, the federal government began requiring photographs on job applications. And Wilson gave tacit approval to all this. Um, at the Versailles Convention, the Peace Conference in 1919, Wilson helped kill a proposal from Japan calling for a treaty to recognize the principle of racial equality. 11 out of 17 members at the meeting considered the amendment and they favored it. Wilson, who was presiding, arbitrarily decided that the amendment had, had to be defeated because the vote wasn't unanimous. Um, the reference to the question about the birth of the nation, which he screened at the White House, that actually was a, a film adapted from the book called The Klansman by Thomas uh, Dixon Jr., who happened to be a classmate and a friend of President Woodrow Wilson. Um, the movie portrayed Reconstruction as catastrophic. It showed radical Republicans encouraging equality for blacks, who in the film are represented as uncouth, intellectually inferior, and predators of white women. And this racist narrative was widely accepted as historical fact. Uh, for his part, Wilson lent the birth of a nation his approval by screening it at the White House in March of 1915 and reportedly telling Griffith it could teach history with lightning. We don't know if that's actually a true quote, but most historians kind of repeat it, and I just recycle it as well. All right, so I'm sure he'd be happy with the spike in KK memberships. KK? KKK? You know what I'm talking about. All right, uh, next one. By the way, that whole Birth of a Nation is pretty much a recruiting film for the KKK. All right, uh, I think this is the last question. Next time I'm going to print these out. This is insane. Bear with me here. Um, oh. Oh, why was Russia excluded from the League of Nations? Um, quick context, the old Russian Empire collapsed in February of 1917 with the abdication of the Romanov family, the last imperial dynasty to rule Russia. Russia had a brief and chaotic period of democratic rule after the collapse of the Romanovs. A civil war started almost immediately. Uh, the Allies watched with concern. They even sent troops to protect their interest in key supply routes. By March of 1918, the new Bolshevik government, uh, who had Marxist ideas, signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with Germany, uh, removing them from World War I. 
this uh, was clear cause of concern for the Allies. Now, during that civil war, the Allies, Britain, France, Japan, and the United States initially sent troops to help with the war effort, but they kind of got drawn into the Russian civil war between the Bolshevik Red Army and the White Army, which included factions that supported capitalism, alternative forms of socialism, and monarchism. So we sided in the Russian civil war. It was the Reds versus the Whites. Uh, We sided with the Whites. Uh, And ultimately, the Russian Revolution ended with the Reds gaining power, and we had the creation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in 1917, the first communist state. Uh, There was considerable discussion in Paris whether to invite Russian representatives to the peace conference. Russia had been an ally all the way up to March of 1918. The problem was you didn't know which side to invite to the peace conference. We had those factions, the Reds and the Whites. The Allied powers ultimately refused to recognize the new Bolshevik government and thus did not invite representatives to the peace conference or include them in the League of Nations. Okay, one more, two more questions. Um, why were the Central Powers given a separate treaty from Germany? Okay, uh, ultimately this Paris Peace Conference is going to produce five separate treaties. Okay, um, There's over 32 nations in attendance at the Peace Conference, so there was not a one-size-fits-all element to these treaties that were negotiated. Um, it was not always easy to draw clear ethnic borders, especially in the middle of Europe, so the peacemakers set up a, a bunch of special committees that dealt with these uh individual treaties. So we have a treaty signed with Germany, that's Versailles in in June of 1919. The Treaty of Saint-Germain is going to be signed with Austria in September of 1919. The Treaty of Neuilly is going to be uh, signed with Bulgaria in November of 1919. The Treaty of Trion is going to be signed with Hungary in June of 1920. And the Treaty of Ceres is going to be signed um, with the Ottoman Empire in 1920, in August of 1920. All right, so uh, difficulty with the six months they spent there kind of hacking through all these land claims and trying to redraw boundaries along ethnic lines was incredibly difficult. That's why there's five separate treaties. Ah, uh, and the last one. Why was the Treaty of Versailles never truly passed? So this is kind of a tricky question. The Treaty of Versailles was passed at the Paris Peace Conference on June 28, 1919, um, five years to the day after the war started. So that put the treaty's provisions into action. So it's passed in Europe at the peace conference. Now, for the United States, the way our foreign policy works is we negotiate treaties. The president or his representatives negotiate treaties, but it's the Senate that has to give advice and consent and then ratify it. Our Senate did not ratify that. Now, that was the last podcast I just posted called The Betrayal of Great Expectations. Okay, it really goes through that process. So if you listen to that, kind of get a sense of kind of the, the particulars. We did eventually sign a peace treaty with Germany. Um, It's going to be signed in Berlin in August of 1921. Uh, The main reason that we had to sign that treaty is the U.S. Senate did not consent to the ratification of a multilateral peace treaty with signing at Versailles. We didn't want to be drawn in unilaterally uh, as part of this League of Nations, which was a key element of the Treaty of Versailles. All right. uh, That was a rapid-fire run-through. I wanted to get this up and posted before your SAQ test, which is going to be online for a 15-minute window at 7 o'clock. Good luck.